Thanks, guys. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Job, which is right before Psalms. If you don't, there's a pew Bible hopefully right there in front of you, and it's on page 789. I'm going to preach on the whole book today, um, which is, I know it's a little nutty, but that's just it, right? Um, I'm toying with the idea of coming back next summer and doing the whole summer in the wisdom books, because we kind of flew through. We didn't talk about song songs at all. We didn't hardly talk about the Proverbs, and I'd, I'd really like to come back to these. Um, well, I've got more comments of sermons being helpful from the last two weeks in Ecclesiastes than in probably the pre- preceding year, maybe. So um, we'll see about that. <clears throat> uh, most people know enough um, to know that Job is a book about suffering, and there's a number of reasons why this needs to be talked about, not least because our culture doesn't like to talk about suffering and death, and some, there's got to be somewhere where you talk about it. But um, one of the things that isn't really much of a perk of being a pastor is that you get to be privy to a lot of the suffering and death in a church. And so um, as much as I get to be God's spoiled kid in that I get to read my Bible during the week on your dime— um, I also get to be there for people saying, um, I want to kill myself. I can't take this chronic pain anymore. And how, how do I believe in Jesus so that I don't, I don't kill myself? It really happens. Um, uh, I, I get to know who has cancer that has been deemed incurable. I, I get to hear about people who've been married for 20 years to somebody who is just an idiot and yet believes that, there's, that God wants them to stay, that they've made a pledge before God to mutually care for one another. You know, I've been there, I have to be there when people thought that, that they needed to start this business to provide for their family, and it just it kind of implodes. Um, and I could just go on and on and on about people not making the major they wanted, or not getting into medical school, or not doing this, or something happens, or they were going to finish this, but they got sick, and I got, I mean, just, um, there's a quote from the book of Job that turns out is also a quote from um, Anne of Green Gables. Um, as surely as sparks fly upward, so does trouble come to human beings. And um, so there's an, the reasons we need to talk about this are at least these. A, um, people suffer. Um, the world is a beautiful place, and it's a horrible place. And people routinely are in the process of getting ground up in the iron teeth of a thousand kinds of suffering. And if you're not in them right now, you're getting licked at the moment, okay? Um, Two, for a lot of people who hate the idea of Christian faith, um, the thing that stands in their mind as the thing that makes the doctrine of Christian faith so hateful in their minds is that there could be suffering like there really is, and people could believe that there's a providential, loving God over it all. And it is a powerful obstacle, and it stops up the wheels of people from believing in the Savior, and it's horrible. 
and people say terrifyingly blasphemous things about God in this regard, and it's coming from a place of real pain, real intellectual confusion, and it needs to be, um, something needs to be said about it. And third, most Christians, when they end up in a situation where there's real suffering, either in somebody they're relating to or in their own life, they just flat lose their nerve to declare the two most important things about God that he reveals about himself, and that is that he's absolutely 100% completely sovereign over everything. And two, that he's loving and gracious and generous and caring more than you could possibly imagine. I mean, you try, you try that. I mean, you just try doing it yourself. You can probably think of time you got weak in the knees talking to somebody who was suffering. The last thing you, you said something like, well, I'm sure God had limited options and, you know, or, but to say one, minimum, God knew this was going to happen and didn't stop it. Minimum. Right? And two, I mean, that's hard enough just to say God is sovereign. Look, God is sovereign. It's a hundred times harder than that to say, and he's caring and loving and gracious and has good purpose in this. And it's from Satan, and Satan is doing it for evil, and God is higher than this, and he has a purpose for good in it. That just sounds to people like the worst possible platitude ever generated by the mind of dismissive man. But it's actually the truth of the universe that really exists. It's horribly difficult. Now, and then there's a fourth reason, and this one's just as hard, and that is this. God demonstrates his great worth in at least two ways. One of those ways is blessing. He freely and generously gives to people far beyond what they could ever deserve through an extravagant amount of just free giving. Sorry about that. We good? <clears throat> so one of the ways is blessing. That's really in the Bible. It's all over the Bible. People trust God. He blesses them. It's wonderful. And that's one of the ways he demonstrates his worth. The other way, one of the other big ways, is when human beings trust him and demonstrate that he is worth more to them than everything else in the world because everything in the else in the world is completely stripped away from them. Their work, their family, their health, their money, their future, their hopes, their leisure, their sound mind. It's all stripped away, and they say, Christ is more valuable than everything I've ever lost. And I didn't love him in the first place for what he gave me. I loved him for who he is, and I will love him to the end. Not based on what he's given me in this world, but what he's promised me and forever because of the character of Christ himself. 
And that is the only way it can ever be proven in empirical existence that you care about Jesus for something other than the stuff he's given you. And God is always working multiple angles because while he's demonstrating to others Christ's worth, he's actually changing you because Christ can only become everything to you as he's the only thing that's left. You lose control of everything else and you cling to him entirely. Trust is built in a very costly way. And the universe, the fundamental life of the universe, the union of human beings and all created intelligent beings with God himself functions on that trust, which the Bible calls faith. Now there's 57 other reasons why we need to talk about this stuff, but that's four of them. And that would be enough to do three months on this probably. So let's spend 40 minutes. <clears throat> Let me go quickly go over the, the um, structure of the book of Job. The book of Job breaks down into four parts. Now the, here's the th interesting thing about the book of Job. Nobody has any idea when this story happened or when the book was written. Okay? It doesn't mention the law, Moses, the people of Israel, any of that stuff. So it's, the story could be the oldest in the Bible, except for the creation story, right? It goes way back. There's no Bible for these guys to believe in, okay? Um, it starts out with a conversation between God and Satan, with all the angels and everybody who's in heaven. And then <clears throat> Job suffers, and then there's a lengthy conversation between Job and three of his friends, and one younger guy that shows up at the end that talks for a couple of chapters. Okay. Then God questions Job. That's part three. And he basically, the, this conversation goes this way. God asks about 48 rhetorical questions for which the answer to all of them is, I don't have any idea what I'm talking about. The human person would answer that. And then Job goes, I, I got nothing to say. I should have shut up at the very beginning. I didn't know what I was talking about. I'm sorry. And then there's this last few verses where God blesses Job, restores him, gives him back everything he lost. But he gives him new children, not the old ones. Right? Now, <clears throat> I'm going to read a couple of chapters here for us to have a good sense of what the book is saying. But, but if you only take one basic idea from this whole book, it should be, it should be this one. The in pain, and the worse the pain is, and the more inexplicable the pain is, the more this is true. God's mysterious sovereignty should be reverently trusted rather than flippantly dismissed. The human heart naturally dismisses the good rule of God when the good rule of God doesn't seem to be working for us which is enormously hypocritical. I can't tell you how many times I've talked with Christians who something happened to them and they lost their faith. And I said, whoa, I go, whoa, 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 whoa. Before that happened to you, weren't there like tens of thousands of kids starving in the world? Like the day before that happened to you? Yeah. And didn't you believe in Jesus then? Yeah. So just, doesn't that mean you're really shallow? <laughs> yeah. Right? And they always look at me like I'm mean, because I sort of am. But, it, but it's, I mean, somebody's got to point this out. I remember, I remember I was driving home from um, 
Blue, Blue Creek or something like that in western Wisconsin. when I was living in Chicago. And I pulled out that old Nokia phone from like the early 2000s, and I had 15 messages on it. And I turned to my friend Eric Hesse, who's a pastor in Richland Center right now, is going to speak here in a couple of weeks. I said, I think one or both of my parents just died. And when we finally got into cell phone range, I called, and my dad had been killed by a reckless driver driving 55 miles an hour with his seatbelt on because a 19-year-old kid decided to pass a tractor trailer on a double yellow line going about 80. Right? And people asked me, it was funny because that was my last semester in seminary and I'd been, I was studying the book of Job that semester. And somebody asked me, they're like, how does that, how do you deal with that? Like, how do you, you know, I'm just like, because like, I'm not angry enough. Yeah, you should ask me that question, right? But I was like, listen, my whole life, I mean, my whole life in Christ, I've been trying to not be a shallow person. And like, there was an enormous, people die every day in this world and it didn't bother me. All of a sudden, my father dies. All of a sudden, that's supposed to bother me? It does bother me. I'm sad. I'm going to cry a little bit later, and I'm going to be frustrated about it, but I'm not going to lose my faith over it. Otherwise, I'm the most shallow human being that ever lived. Whole world can be awash in death and suffering and crime and hatred and cancer and just everything, and I just waltz through it whistling like a good little American. All of a sudden, tragedy comes to my house, and it's over with Jesus. Are you kidding me? I couldn't live with myself if I was that shallow. Or I just—my faith was that shallow. Which is almost as bad. When pain hits—listen here, and here's the thing you got to realize. Pain is like, is like game day. This is one of the reasons why I don't really like doing hospital visits. I like preaching a lot more. And people are like, that's well, just because you don't like to be a pastor and you hate humans. Which there's some truth to that. <laughs> there's some truth to that. But here's what I know. When I get to the hospital, it's already over. Either your faith is there or it isn't. I'm all about practice. I'm all about right now. You are going to suffer. That day is going to come if it's not already here. Or if you're not going through it, you've got to train right now. Because when you get that phone call, when that hits, when you get that x-ray, when that happens, you have to already be ready at least to go into the process that God's going to take you through. You can't afford to—there's some lessons you cannot afford to be on square one when you enter them. And suffering is one of them. And so you have to decide right now that you know you're going to die, and you know you're going to suffer, and you know you're going to be disappointed, and your life isn't going to go the way you want to, and things are going to happen, and they're going to be inexplicable, and you're going to think that you're a good enough person that this shouldn't be happening to you. And why is that person's life going better when they are an A-class jerk, and this, there's no congruity to this at all, and that's exactly right, and God is still sovereign and generous and loving, and it's mysterious. There's no way to type the answers to this, and, but that is still better than flippantly or in any way dismissing God's claims about himself and for you. Let's read a little bit of this book. <clears throat> in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. 
his, son used, his sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And this was Job's regular custom. So meticulous was he about honoring God and following God that he wanted to make sacrifices for his kids. Even, not even knowing they had sinned, just in case they had. Right? One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. The, the name Satan is just the, the Hebrew word behind that is Satan. <laughs> it, they just translate it into English. The Hebrew word means accuser. Hasatan, the accuser. So when he says, have you considered Job? The person's title is accuser. So what is he considering Job for? An accusation, right? So here's the accusation. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands, so that his flocks and herds have spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to his face. Yeah, glorify yourself through him, through generosity. Who doesn't, who doesn't that work for? Try to glorify yourself in him through suffering, and he'll curse you. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Now notice this. The author of Job, three or four thousand years ago, covers all of the major sectors of inexplicable suffering. People afflicting suffering on you, natural disaster afflicting suffering, and direct divine action. Wind from the desert, fire from heaven, bunch of raiders. So he's covering all of that, you see. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. 
On another day, the angels came and presented themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth and going back and forth in it. You see what Satan's doing? He's looking for somebody else, right? He's done with Job. Then look what God does. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. He still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Now think about this. Think about this. Hasn't Job had enough? Satan's ready to move on to the next person. He tried, he lost, what's the big deal? You know, he accuses people all the time falsely, right? And God says, you know what, there's, there's somebody I'm thinking about. Job. Remember how you took everything from him? What, what about him? Do you, are you, see, see saying, are you willing to accept that he doesn't love me for the things I've given him, but he just loves me? Right? Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. Now pay attention to that, because this is one of the clearest biblical statements that claims that Satan is on a leash. He can't do anything that God doesn't allow which will either infuriate you or comfort you. Right? So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful, or you could translate that, hateful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head that Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we not accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Okay, from, from there his friends show up and they have 30 chapters of conversation, right? 32 chapters, I guess. I want to talk about, um, there's two things to reject and one thing to embrace when it comes to inexplicable, undeserved suffering and how that relates to the gospel. And the first one is that you have to absolutely reject the flippant answer of religious moralism. I hope you will read the book of Job. Um, and as you read from chapters 3 onward, when the friends start talking, um, they have a very simple answer for what's wrong with Job and a very clear course of action for how he can improve his life. And that is, when people suffer, it's because they've done something wrong. And if you repent— and you turn around, and you do what's right, God will forgive you, and God will restore you, and God will take care of you, and you will be lifted back up. So whatever it is you were, you've been doing in private that nobody saw, that God has finally brought down on you, you need to confess it, you need to repent of it, you need to walk away from it, and you need to walk toward God, and He will, He'll care for you, He'll lift you up, He'll take care of you. And the book spends 32 chapters demonstrating that that is a worthless and useless argument. In fact, it infuriates God immensely. <clears throat> this is what his buddy says. His first friend starts out kind of this way. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless way is your hope? Consider now, 
Who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I, ha- as I have observed, those who plow evil and who, s- who sow trouble reap it. Right? Let me ask you something. Theologically, is that right? Well, I mean, Paul just straight up says in Galatians, right? Whatever a person sows, that he'll reap. The, the pr- biblical principle that what you plant is what you pick, it's in there, right? But what Eliphaz has done is he's, he's made that true for everything. So it's not a principle, it's not a wisdom principle that tends to work. He's made that how you explain, therefore, all suffering and all blessing, right? It always works 100% of the time, right? And then he says, another friend says to him a little bit later on, I can't remember which friend says this, but you, meaning you, Job, even undermine piety and hinder devotion to God, right? He's saying you are destroying the faith with the way you're talking. Now, why does he say that, right? Because Job says, I'm suffering inexplicably by God horribly, and I don't deserve it in this sense. Now, Job never says he's never sinned, that he's perfectly righteous just like God. He's never said that. He claims a couple places that he is a sinner, but here's what he's saying. He's saying, you guys are saying is that suffering is proportional. What you're saying is that if I, if you sin a lot, you suffer a lot, and if you're really righteous, you're really blessed, that there's proportionality between those two. That you can tell how big a sinner somebody is by how much they suffer, and vice versa. And he's saying, listen, that is not true. And so his friend says, well, then you're destroying religion. If what happens to you has, may have no relationship to what you do, why would anybody be good? <laughs> why would anybody trust God, follow God, obey his commandments, do what's right? Why would anybody do any of that if, if they couldn't expect to be blessed? That's idiotic. All of faith, all of religion, all of trust in God relies on that. Right? And here, listen, here's, there's an apologetics point in here. This is why religion, the Christian religion, when believed biblically, is not any opiate for the masses, because it doesn't do what all the critiques of religion say it does. It doesn't manipulate people into good behavior. Christianity says you can be a terrible human being, and Christ can save you. He can rescue you. And that you don't get what you deserve. I mean, the whole premise of Christianity is you don't get what you deserve. Everybody deserves hell. God offers Christ. Anybody who receives Christ, receives Christ's righteousness and Christ standing before God, God brings them into his eternal family and people, and you don't get what you deserve. It's like, I mean, Paul actually says in Romans, it's like we're promoting bad behavior. Some people actually say, you're promoting bad behavior. That's exactly what Job's friend says. If religion works like that, if God really works like that, if he doesn't give people what they deserve, nobody—why would anybody believe in God? But, but one of the things that happens with, with the flippancy of religious moralism is that when, it, when people don't accept it, when you tell it to them, you have to like double down on them. And so you're like, well, listen, you just need to— They start out being really kind with Job. Job, you just need to repent. You just gotta, you know, just turn around. Maybe God's just kind of disciplining you. You can—but you know what they say later on? When Job won't accept it, 
One of his friends, I think it's Bildad, that says this. He goes, listen, your kids are dead because they're sinners. All ten of them. God just killed them. They got what they deserved. You're getting what you deserve. Now repent. That's, that's helpful, right? And it gets worse. It gets, it gets awful, right? And so Job says this, you smear me with lies, you're worthless physicians, all of you. And then he's, he argues against their point. He's like, listen, he's like, men at ease have contempt for misfortune as the fate of those whose feet are slipping. He's like, listen, if you've got it easy, it's probably your philosophy of this stuff is terrible because you don't even think about it. You just think contemptuously towards people who suffer. But he says this, listen, the tents of marauders are undisturbed and those who provoke God are secure. Those who carry their gods in their hands. But ask the animals and they will teach you, or the birds of the air and they will tell you, or speak to the earth and it will teach you, or let the fish of the sea inform you, which of all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this. So you see what he's saying? He's saying, no, you're right. You guys are right that God is totally sovereign over everything. I'm not disputing that. He's like, that's totally right. But he's like, listen, to contemporize it. Listen, I know a pile of drug lords in South Miami who are drinking martinis besides pools with augmented women who have the best health care in the world. And they're not suffering an iota. And yet, some of the best human beings that I've ever seen are slaves, and they're sick, and they're poor, and they're crushed. Now you tell me that that works. It doesn't work. And you just don't care, because you don't think about it, because your whole skin isn't festering with boils. And so you don't think about it. Right? He says, although I'm blameless, and I have no concern for my life, and I despise my own life, it's all the same. That is why I say, he, that's God, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. And when a land falls into the hands of the wicked, he blindfolds its judges. If it's not he, then who is it? Right? And now you need to remember something. At the end of the book of Job, God says, Job spoke well about me. Now, now you need to think about this. God is more forgiving of this kind of venting overstatement than he is towards the religious moralism of Job's friends. That is all about vindicating God. It's all about, like, God, no, God is right. God is totally sovereign, and he does what people deserve, and God is totally right. His friends are arguing that God is totally right, and it infuriates God. Because at the end of the book, he says, Job, you, th- these guys need to make sacrifices, and you're going to pray for them, and after you pray for them, I'll forgive them because of the way they talked about me. But he pointed to Job, and he said, He asks him some questions, but he accepts this, and here's why. Because it's true. It's true. Think about this. Um, A few years ago, there was a cyclone that hit Bangladesh, and it killed a half a million people. Right? Now, do you think that all the Christians lived, and all the moral people lived, and that everybody else was killed? Is that what you think happened? Because that's not what happened. People just got killed. And listen, I heard stories, I mean, I actually heard stories from some missionaries where something amazing happened and some people were, some Christians were saved and it was really inexplicable. But listen, they were not the only Christians in that cyclone. And a lot of Christians died. And Job is just simply pointing out the truth. It's just a fact. I mean, I mean, just 
Do you think cancer rates are lower among Christians? Do you think murder rates are? I mean, there's some, there's some benefits to clean living. But that's only to a certain extent. You can't beat genetics. Right? Okay. And Job sees that. He's like, listen, you guys, like, I don't know what you're, what you're smoking, but like, your worldview doesn't work. It's clearly empirically false just on the face of it. And this is great. He's like, have you never left your hometown? Like, he's like, talk to anybody who's traveled anywhere and ask them if there's anywhere in the entire world in which what you're saying actually happens. Because it doesn't happen like that anywhere. Right? I don't have time for that right now. <clears throat> the second thing is that there's another, there's another dismissal of God's sovereignty that is much more prevalent in our culture that's just as bad in, in that it's just as illogical and it's just as false. And that is that we have to reject the insufficient answer of cynicism, right? Now there's like a secular version of this, which is the like, listen, life's a crapshoot. You get what you get. You know, who knows what's going to happen to you. It's all chance and whatever happens, happens. And so if you suffer, man, you just lost the lottery. I'm sorry. And if you're rich, then you won the lottery, and that's great, and that's just all there is to it. Which, listen, listen to me. That is just as uncompassionate an answer. We just think because we can somehow argue for it that it's more compassionate. It's just as uncompassionate, and it's just as inexplicable. Think about it this way. When I was in college, I remember there was some kind of thing. I think it was a hurricane that hit Haiti. It wasn't the last one. This was back in 95 or 6 or so. And um, <clears throat> I remember um, uh, there, was this, there was this guy who had a, like a Christian radio, a Christian TV station. He said, he said, listen. Sorry, he said he got them on sale. <laughs> um, so, um, so this, this Christian pastor guy who's on TV that thousands of people listen to said, hey, listen, God is punishing Haiti, right? And of course, all the secular news media outlets just went ballistic on that, which they probably should have. And they're like, how can you say that? Blah, 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 right? And their, see, their view was God doesn't punish nations. That would be inexplicable and wrong, right? You can't punish a whole group of people. But if you've read the Bible, does God ever punish nations, lift up nations, and bring nations down? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I still was really embarrassed by that statement. And the reason was, how can you possibly know that? Right? Like, I mean, if God destroys Haiti with a hurricane, and he doesn't destroy Las Vegas, I mean, like, who's he going to apologize to? I mean, this is ridiculous. Or New York. Right? Like, is, is, I mean, is, is the greed as, in New York as bad as the dependency in Haiti, as bad as the licentiousness in Las Vegas? I mean, who knows? Nobody knows any of that stuff. It's just, we, but here's the thing. How could anybody know if chance was all there was? It's just as impossible to prove. There's no control to test an empirical experiment against. There's no way you could demonstrate it. You could say that things generally look that way, but there's a lot of things that don't look that way. 
It's just an assumption. The assumption is you can only believe the lowest common denominator of what you can prove, but that's not a very good way to do logic. If all of us only believed the lowest common denominator of what we could prove, we'd never love anybody. We'd have to assume everybody was going to be an idiot. You just, you take chances. That's how life is, because sometimes things turn out well. You, you don't have to believe the bottom. And yet, it is a smarter objection. Because it, this objection is in agreement with someone who is really, really intelligent. And that's Satan. Because this is the claim of Satan. And he doesn't only make it in his conversation with God. He uses the terrifying suffering of Job to use Job's wife as his own mouthpiece. Now, before we read this thing that Job's wife says, I heard John Piper say this, and I thought it was profoundly wise. We need to start off by giving Job's wife a break. Okay? It's very easy to say, you know, you're supposed to be nice to your husband. He's got boils. I mean, just, I mean, you, you really have to do this? I mean, I, I remember when I was younger and I talked about the book of Job, I was like, you know, it's like God, you know, cursed Job by taking everything from him, but the, like the one worst possible thing in his life, he left her. Right? That's a terrible thing to say. It's, a ter- it's, a, it's funny, but it's a terrible thing to say. Think about this woman, okay? Just for a minute. She's lost all 10 of her kids on one day. Maybe just a couple days before this. We don't, we don't know the time scale. She's lost all of her security. She's about to lose her husband because some of these boils are going to get infected. Job's going to go septic and he's going to die. Later on, when Job was talking, he talks about that his boils are infested with dirt and worms. They're maggots eating in his flesh on his boils. He's going to die. This is a terminal thing, okay? And who cares for a widow whose whole family was destroyed by the curse of God? Who wants in on that? In a, in a society before the law, where you could assume there's a good bit of superstition, if Job's, Job's friends are any, any question about how the village is thinking. So the likelihood she's going to be completely ostracized, because nobody wants a piece of that, is high. This woman's life is over. She's been through an awful lot. She's going to die just like Job is, and she's going to be the last one to turn the lights out. It's awful. And so she turns to Job, and she's weak, and Satan speaks through her really clearly because they make the exact same argument. And she says, why are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. It's so obvious because that's exactly what Satan has to prove, right? He has to lose his integrity. He has to curse God. That's what Satan needs to win, right? And that's exactly what she says because she's weak, and she just says it, right? And we're predisposed to read the next verse in a feminist way where we say, he says, you're talking like a foolish woman. That is, he's saying, you're just a woman. Don't talk to me. But that's not really what he's saying. Notice the, the, the word a. You're, ta- you're, not, you're talking like a foolish woman. Uh, the, I think it's the New Revised Standard Version that translate it, translates it. You're talking like one of the foolish women. Meaning that there is a category of women who are ditz idiots. And they are—they don't believe. And they don't—they're not solid. They're just not solid women. And that's what they talk like. If God doesn't do good stuff for them, they're not going to do stuff for God. What have you done for me lately? This is about economics, you know. And he's like—he's like, sweetheart, listen. 
you're talking like one of those women right now. That's not what you're, that's not who you are. That's not what we're like. That's not what we believe. You're talking like one of those atheist women, and you're not one, right? And then he says, listen, when we received good, we said, God is good. Even though our neighbors, some of our neighbors were in pain, right? And now we receive trouble, right? But when we received good, did we believe we had earned all that good? Was I good enough to have thousands of camels? No. We didn't deserve it. God chose to give that to us, and now we get suffering. It's are we going to change our mind about God because he changes what he gives us? Is that right? Right? That's his claim. But that's the same, the argument she makes is the same one Satan makes, right? He says, does he love you for nothing? Meaning, isn't Job well compensated for his love for you? You see, the, the question here relates to a concept that we re repeat over and over again and scarcely understand at all. Love. The, the old philosophical way this was referred to was disinterested love. But we generally think of the word disinterested as not interesting. But there used to be a category for this back when we were a moral people, which was something was right or wrong uh, having nothing to do with your personal interest in it, right? That's so disinterested love would be that you love something because it's intrinsically worth loving, not because of what you personally have at stake in it, right? And so you could say, so for example, a building is built, and you might be the architect or somebody else might be the architect, but that doesn't matter for how much, how great you say the building is. You're like, that's a killer building. Doesn't matter if you made it or somebody else. Or whether, but if you're like, well, it's great, and I made it. So that's interested. That's, your self-interest is clouding your moral judgment. What, what he's taught, what, what, jo, what Satan is talking about here is he's saying, listen, what causes Job to love you, to fear you, to reverence you, to be in awe of you, to be devoted to you, is his interest. <laughs> that's all. You give him stuff. You give him lots of stuff. You've protected him. Have you ever heard Christians praying about a hedge of protection. Let's not joke about how silly that is right now, but this is where it's from, right? It's a protective barrier, right? So he's got this protective barrier around him. He's laughably rich, right? And Satan says, I think we all know why he loves you, right? And <clears throat> you see, that is another kind of cynicism. There's an atheistic cynicism, but there is a—there's like a lifestyle cynicism there's a belief about love kind of cynicism that says this. I don't know if God exists or not. It's a pragmatic cynicism. I don't know if, I don't know if God's out there. I don't know what, but here's what I know. We're all just using each other, right? We're all just trying to get ahead. Have you experienced this, right? Somebody, you know, you're, you're, in, you're in a business, somebody, people, all of a sudden somebody's really nice to you, and then you don't open doors for them fast enough, and all of a sudden they don't care about you anymore. Have you ever had that experience? Right? <clears throat> or, um, uh, you know, ladies, have you ever had a guy that was really nice to you, listened to what you said, was emotionally empathic, and then found out you weren't going to sleep with them, and all of a sudden they didn't care anymore? Right? Has that ever happened? No? Okay. Um, and here's the thing. That's not what men are like. That's what humans are like. And people look around and they see how we're users. 
And we go, well, how could it be any different between us and God? Right? <clears throat> that is a cynicism that will creep in when suffering hits because you don't deserve this, right? If you live a good life, you should get a good life. And if God isn't giving you a good life, then you devoted yourself to him and he's crushing you. And God can't be trusted. And here's why. Because you don't believe in grace and you don't believe in love. You believe you should be paid back a fair price for what you provided economically for the glory of God. And he is not paying up his side of the bargain. And that has nothing to do with Christianity. You might ask, what's the alternative? <clears throat> and the alternative is that you and I—it's the, the same end of Ecclesiastes, right? The end of Ecclesiastes was life seems like it's meaningless. How do you put it all together? You actually can't put it all together. You can only trust the one who put it all together. When you ask the, that question in relationship to suffering rather than meaning, it's the same thing. You want to put it all together in relationship to suffering? That's great. You go get them, tiger. But guess what? The book of Job says it's not going to work. We can work really hard philosophically to find an answer to the question of the problem of suffering. I've spent hundreds of hours in my life doing it. I've read a couple thousand pages on this philosophically, and I, I've got a couple little go-tos that I'll use, and you'll find them really interesting. I promise. But what the book of Job basically says is, you know, really, you better, you better shut your mouth, and either you're going to trust the one who's sovereign over all of it, or you're not, because you're not going to find an answer. It's too complicated. There's too many possibilities. I remember sitting down with a girl who was, I think she was 14. Her mom had terminal cancer. I was a camp counselor. Well, I was, I was a camp pastor at the time, and she was in this girl's cabin, and she didn't know what to do with her. Um, and so they asked me if I would talk with this girl whose mother was dying, right? I'm like, I guess that's what camp pastors do, sure. So we sat down, and she said, listen, I've talked to a bunch of people about, like, suffering and why God lets people suffer, and why is my mom going to die, and stuff like that. She's like, I just can't make any sense of it. It's, like, really difficult. I said, okay. Let's get some paper and some pencils. So we went and we got a couple clipboards, paper and pencils, sat, sitting out at this picnic table. And I said, okay. Because she'd been a Christian like her whole life. Like she'd read a bunch of the Bible. It was in youth group and all that kind of stuff, but she was still dying. I said, okay, write down every possible reason you could think of that God could rightly allow any kind of suffering at all. Right? And I'm going to do it too. We'll do it for like six minutes, right? And so we both did it. And she wrote a bunch of stuff down and I wrote a bunch of stuff down. I had about 35, but I'm a pastor. And she had about 16. Where she was like, I could understand. You know, it was kind of like other people use their free will to hurt you, and God, God wants to create free human beings, you know, and then like he could bring a greater good out of it. He could use it as a testing. He could go, oh, so sure, all these down. I said, okay. So you've got 16. I got 35. We crossed off. We did this categories thing. And then we had, you know, 22, right? And I said, okay, now, do you think that God is only ever doing one of these if somebody is suffering? She's like, well— no, he could be doing lots of them. Okay, I said, so, so how many we got? 23? Okay, so we got 23, and then he could be doing any of the other ones, right? Yep, so 22. You do that, do that math, 21. You multiply that out, right? And then I said, now, now, do you think we got them all, you and me, in five minutes? She's like, well, probably not. How many do you think there are? She's like, well, I don't know. I suppose if we just you and I worked on it, we'd get 40. I was like, I think we could probably get 40, but there might be 500, right? She's like, yep. So, so what we're saying here is, is that in theory, if God is working multiple angles, and these are real reasons why people could suffer, it's basically an infinite number of things God could be possibly doing. Yeah. So you think you're going to figure this out while your mom's dying? No. Yeah, I don't either. I'm, not, I'm certainly not going to figure it out for you. 
I was like, ultimately, you're either going to have to trust in the graciousness of God, or you're not. God says he loves you. And it's going to be like this, right? I don't know if you know this, but there's, um, this will be the last thing, for those of you who are wondering how long I'm going to talk for. Um, we had those intermissions with the battery, right? So, <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but there's basically three conversations with Satan in the Bible. The whole Bible. Whole Bible. There's like three conversations with Satan. The first one is in the garden. It's in Genesis 3, right? It's when he tempts the man or the woman. I'm assuming here that the serpent is Satan. And do you notice that it's the exact same conversation? Except instead of him talking, accusing to God, he's accusing to Eve. And what does he say? He's saying about God, he's like, you can't trust him. He doesn't love you for nothing. Think about this. He's holding you back. He wants to get all the glory he can get out of you. He wants to squeeze you for all the glorification you can give him. And he's just going to give you whatever he has to to get the most out of you. And he's like, think about this. You can eat all the trees in the garden. Well, what is in the garden? There's not even honey crisps yet, right? I mean, like, <laughs> right? There's, I mean, there's not, I mean, there's, there's some fruits. Oh, look, there's some figs. And he's like, and this is the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's like inviting somebody to a Chinese restaurant saying you can have white rice. He's like, this is, I mean, God knows if you eat this, you'll be like God's, and he's holding it back from you. I mean, who can love somebody like that? I mean, think of how small he's trying to make you, right? How much truth was there in it? None. Do we believe it? Absolutely. And you and I have been believing it every minute of every day ever since. We come in here and we pretend we believe in a God who is totally sovereign over all things and who loves us. And then we go out there and we act like pragmatic pagans who can't possibly believe God loves us. Or somewhere in the middle, like Job, but not as good. The biggest struggle for every human being, whether you're in this church or not, is always a conviction all the way down that God is sovereign over everything that's going to happen in your life. Anything Satan does is on a leash, at least allowed. He has a good and gracious purpose for it. Satan means for it to destroy and crush you, and he means it for it to make you who you are always meant to be. Forever. And that the greatest struggle of our lives is believing that for this minute. The second conversation was in Job, right? How much truth was there in it? What does Job love you for, right? Did Job struggle with having everything stripped away from him? Did he struggle? Yeah, for like 40 chapters. Does that mean he was perfect spiritually? He had it all worked out? No, that means he didn't, right? So, but he didn't curse God. So what God realized was Job still had a long way to go. He's the best human being on earth at the time. He had a long way to go, right? And there was a lot of truth in it, but God didn't accept it. He bet everything on the possibility of disinterested love. Everything. You think the book of Job is about Job? It's not about Job. It is about the very dynamic of eternity. This whole book falls on the idea of whether or not love is something that can actually exist. Right? It's, it's one of the themes of the book, the Screwtape Letters, right? 
screw tape the demon is always going off. It's like, love! It's this, it's this idiotic idea that God has come up with that somehow two others can freely give to each other and nourish each other into something more. It's idiotic. Look at anything in nature. In order for me to get bigger, I have to eat you. That's how it works. I become stronger if you become weaker. I become more if you become less. I become enriched if I can take from you. Everything grows on the back of something else. All of recreation is like that. That is the nature of reality. And God says, nope. And Job, in the whole Bible, and everything he's ever said, and everything he's ever done is staked on that idea, that disinterested love, that one could love another, not for what they get, but for who they are. Even when one of those objects is unlovely. Can happen, and the two could easily and from the heart nourish each other without reference to payment. Which is why, incidentally, I think he invented marriage. You run marriage, you run marriage like Satan, and you end up really upset. You run marriage like God, where you freely give and you don't, you're not counting. It goes really different. Right? And then you have to have children, which you have to just like pour out and pour out and pour out and pour out just for their good. It's training. Right? And you know what the last conversation was? It's in Luke chapter 4. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days on the desert. And Satan shows up. And he goes, why don't you make those rocks into bread? Why don't you let me make you king of everything? God's not going to make you king of everything, but I will. Why don't you jump down off the tower? It says in the Bible that you won't get hurt if you do that, if you trust God. Jesus, you ought to get something for this. You serve God, he'll crush you. But you ought to get something for this. You're the son of God. If you're hungry, you ought to make some food. If you want to be king, just be king. Just do it. You read the Gospels, you read all four of them, and you find one place where Jesus used an ounce of supernatural power for himself. You will never find it. You'll read it till not just the cows come home, but the cheese is made. <laughs> and you won't find it because it's not in there. Because Jesus was, Jesus is the anti-Satan. He is the true Job. There was only one person ever in the history of the world that was truly innocent, that served God and was crushed. And it was God's mechanism. He was God's way of proving that that would never be true of you if you trust in him. Because Jesus is the true Job, the perfectly innocent sufferer who was crushed by God and thrown into hell, so to speak. So he demonstrates that God is the God that will not ultimately crush any who turn to him even when it looks that way. And notice this, Jesus never came with the answer to the book of Job or to the sufferings of any of our lives. He didn't say, oh, here's what it means. He just died for us. Because whether or not we trust God's mysterious, gracious providence in our suffering doesn't have much to do with the answer but it comes to what we think about the character of the one who is. If you believe that God is sovereign and loving, you can deal with anything. And if you don't, it doesn't matter what answer he's given, it will sound like an idiotic, pat answer. 
And God knows that. And that's why the answer isn't a philosophical treatise on God's providential actions. It's the blood of the true, innocent, crushed Savior. Who through him being crushed, God brought about the greatest good that has ever existed in the history of the universe. And if that is how God acts, he, if God is willing to crush his dear one to create something so great that we can hardly imagine it, you can trust that no matter how you are crushed for the glorification of God, that he can have a good purpose in it. He can be perfectly sovereign over it, and he can himself, in the person of Jesus, have walked through it. And I would encourage you, instead of being religiously hypocritical or pragmatically cynical, to accept that love exists, and the only way to make that work is trust by putting your faith and trust in the Savior. For the first time, for the thousandth time. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> um, I know there's so much we've passed over in this book, but we pray that you would teach us about what it means to trust you in suffering. And I know, um, I know that um, every statement of suffering will sound flippant to many people, but I pray, God, that we would be able to hear the earnestness in the voice of Job and in your voice. That though you don't explain yourself, you always demonstrate your loving care. And that we can trust that with our eyes, after our death, with our eyes, we will see our Redeemer. The resurrection is our great hope, but it's not our great payment, Father. Just knowing you, loving you, and being known by you is to be our great treasure. And Father, we pray that you'd help us to learn that lesson with the smallest amount of suffering we could possibly need. We pray that you would help us to glorify you, to show people your worth, whether it's in blessing, through generosity and care for others, or whether it's through our suffering. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.